Well, will you turn with me in your Bibles then to Romans chapter 2? Continuing to make our way through Paul's letter to the Romans, and we find ourselves today in Romans chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 17 through 29 together. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word? Romans 2, verses 17 through the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Thus ends the reading of God's word. All flesh is like grass, and all of its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. As a, as a parent, and also often as a pastor, a question that I frequently find myself coming back to is this very simple question that I will ask of people and of my kids. Where is your heart? It's an important question for a number of reasons. It's an important question because it gets us past simply the outward behavior and it gets us talking about the deeper question about what is really going on in a person's thoughts and in their heart. And the second reason it's such a valuable question is because unless someone is willing to confess what's really going on in their heart, it's very difficult to know. 
of 1 Corinthians 2, Paul asks the rhetorical question. He says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? We may think we know someone. Uh, We might think that we know them really well. But in fact, we might not know them at all. Man looks at the outward appearance. Man judges people's behavior. And we come to certain conclusions about what is really going on inside of people. But, you know, it's not always easy to actually discern the heart. It may be easier when the behavior is all rotten. After all, Jesus said in Matthew 15, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. There are times that you can look at someone's behavior and and you have a pretty clear sense of where their heart is. But what about when their behavior looks good? What about when that person seems to check all the boxes on the outside? I think that makes it more difficult to know. You see, Jesus said a cup can be cleaned on the outside and left dirty on the inside. He said that whitewashed tombs are full of dead men's bones. And I think that that just gets at the reality of what the prophet Jeremiah said when he wrote in Jeremiah 17, that the heart is deceitful above all things, and it's desperately sick, and who can know it? Who can know the heart? Jeremiah gives the answer. The Lord searches the heart. He searches and tests the mind. And he gives to everyone according to their deeds. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Now, why is that significant? Well, because today in our passage, Paul is continuing an argument that we've been following now for several weeks. And he is drilling down on the heart. The best way to sort of follow the line of this argument is to keep the conclusion of the argument before us. And so let me remind you first of the conclusion of Paul's argument. You can find that in chapter 3 in verses 9 through 10, where he says that we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. And Paul, as he's been working his way through this letter, has just been demonstrating. He has been charging everyone as under sin. And so in chapter 1, he showed how the nations, the Gentiles, the Greeks, how they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against them, and it's manifest in their crooked and devious behavior. In chapter 2, he has so far been reminding us of the certainty of God's judgment, that God is a just judge who shows no partiality, so that the Gentiles who uh, did not have the law will be judged apart from the law, and the Jews who have had the law will be judged by the law. God shows no partiality. And it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, 
It's the doers of the law. And so as we pick things back up here now in verse 17, Paul is really drilling down on his fellow Jews. He is drilling down on their heart. He's exposing their hypocrisy. And he is driving them to this conclusion that their circumcision is of no value unless it's actually accompanied by a spiritual change of heart. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, and not by the letter. He's pulling out that question. Where is your heart? And beloved, I I hope that you understand that that is an important question, not just for Jews who grew up in the synagogue. That is an important question for Christians who grew up in church. Paul is not singling out the Jews here and painting some sort of ethnic stereotype. That is not what Paul is doing. And and please do not countenance any teaching that would promote and use this passage to promote some sort of anti-Semitism. Paul was a Jew. Paul loved his fellow kinsmen according to the flesh. He wished he could be accursed for them. So Paul is not picking on his own people here and saying that they're somehow worse than the other nations. But what he is saying is they're not better than the other nations. And that was surprising to them. In spite of the fact that they had been given the law, given many covenantal privileges, the fact of the matter was that they were just like every other sinful son of Adam. And if they're not better than anyone else, it means that the hypocrisy that he is, he is going after here, if that was a danger for them, it is certainly a danger for us. And I trust that you know that to be true. I trust that you know it from your own experience. I trust you know it from the kinds of things that you hear people say about the church. One of the principal criticisms that we hear is that the church is full of hypocrites. It's full of people who don't practice what they preach. And it's not hard to find evidence of that. We all know the names of popular preachers and teachers, some of whom are close to home, whose public and disgraceful falls have brought shame on the name of Christ. And it's easy to point the finger But you know in your own heart your own failures to live up to the things that you profess. So let's not be finger pointers today. Let us hear what Paul is saying to the people of God. Let us hear what the Spirit is saying to us so that our own hearts might be exposed, so that that plumb line of God's law would show where we're falling short, but also so that we might run to Christ for mercy. That is, after all, the whole point of Paul's argument. That these people he's addressing and that we would run to Christ for mercy. That he would bring us to Christ. He will cut us down with the law so that he might comfort us in Christ. And so as we look at this passage then, let me just give you a couple of words to help summarize the teaching of this chapter. The first word is boasting. 
boasting in verses 17 through 24 as Paul is cutting the legs out from under those who boast in the law and dishonor God by breaking it. The second word is believing in verses 25 through 29 as Paul shows us that the answer to the law has always been a matter of the heart and of the spirit, boasting and believing. As as we think about boasting here, look how Paul picks things up and he anticipates an objection. Uh, Paul's been leveling the playing field, right? Uh, And he's been so leveling the playing field that it may seem that he's discounting the actual advantages and privileges of being called a Jew. There was a source of pride in that, a source of pride that the Jewish people took in being an actual physical descendant of Abraham according to the flesh. They had been given the law. They had been entrusted with the oracles of God. And Paul is not going to sidestep those things. He's going to address these advantages. You'll see that the very next chapter begins with these words. Then what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? And he says, much in every way. So he is not discounting the advantages. But before he gets to the advantages, he needs to first deal with this mistaken assumption that they could rely on the law for justification before the judge of all the earth. He needs to deal with this false assumption that they could rely on the law for their justification before God's throne of judgment. So look at what he says. If you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and you boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. You see his reasoning. He's going back to what they know, what they approve of, what they have been instructed in. But his point is that that's not enough. It's not enough to know the law. It's not enough to approve of the law. It's not enough to be well instructed in the law if you don't do the law. Why? Because it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. It's not those who know and approve of and are instructed by the law who are, who are justified before God. It's the doers of the law. And that knowledge of the law has created in them a sense of boasting. You can hear it in, in what he says next. Are you so sure that you are a guide to the blind? That you are a light to those who are in darkness? An instructor of the foolish? A teacher of children? Because having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You see, it's not just that they have this sense of confidence before God. It's that they have this sense of confidence before the whole world. That they are the world's teachers and instructors. They are a light in darkness, a guide for the blind. And in truth, they ought to be. Paul is is actually summarizing from Isaiah. He spoke of faithful Israel, who would be a light to the nations, who would open the eyes of the blind, who would bring out the prisoners from darkness. Paul's just sort of working through that text. The problem is they have this sense that it's having the law that puts them 
in the position to do this? Who better to instruct the nations on morality than those who have the law as the embodiment of knowledge and truth? You can hear the echo of this among Christian sort of culture warriors at times. Who better than us to instruct the world on morality than we who have the law? How does Paul approach that? He turns the tables. He says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? I think that last phrase is is probably not about robbing actual physical temples. It may be. But I think it's probably an allusion to Malachi, who speaks of, will a man rob God? And he, he looks at Israel's worship and sees how they're robbing the glory of God. They're committing idolatry, even though they say, we don't worship idols. In any case, the conclusion is this. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's not Paul saying that. Paul is quoting from the scriptures. This is what God says about you. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What does that mean? How is it that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles? Paul's quoting from Isaiah 52. In Isaiah, the prophet is reflecting on how Israel was exiled because of her sins and how that brought shame on God, how it gave this impression that God was not able to protect them, that God did not care for them. It didn't just affect their reputation, it affected the reputation of the God whom they professed to serve. And I think that is the point that Paul's making here. When, when God's people preach against stealing, and then they are known as thieves, I mean, just think of the charlatan preachers that you see on TV who are getting money out of widows promising them things that God's word doesn't promise. How do the nations look at that sort of thing? When they preach against adultery, but are known as adulterers. When they preach against idolatry, but practice idolatry. It's not just our reputation that is at stake. It's God's reputation. It's God's name that is being blasphemed. The nations blaspheme and insult the name of God because of the behavior of his people. If that's what their God is like, I don't want anything to do with that God. Now, before we go on, let me just pause here and say, once again, that what Paul is saying about Jewish people is true about Christian people. These questions are just as searching for us as they would have been for any Jew. And we are just as prone to the sin of hypocrisy, to the sin of presuming upon the grace of God as they are. 
So what is the answer? How do we deal with this? The fact that we are hypocritical. Is the answer, well, just stop being a hypocrite. Stop it. Is that the answer? Just try harder. Do more. Be better. I suppose you've already tried that. I know I have. Do you think that's what Paul wanted his fellow Jews to think? Was that the reason he was showing them their hypocrisy? Is so that they could pull up their bootstraps and just go at it a little harder this time. If that's not what he wants the Jews to think, it's certainly not what he wants us to think. The answer is not to be more and better instructed by the law so that you can approve what is right and attempt to follow it. The problem is not an understanding problem, is it? It's not that you don't know what you should do. That has never been your problem. It's not that you don't know what the law commands. It's not even that you don't approve of it, because you do. You say with Paul, it's, it's holy and righteous and good. The problem is a heart problem, isn't it? The problem is not just giving more attention to the law, because the law does not solve the problem of the heart. And Paul has been dwelling on the problem. He's been dwelling on the problem so that when he finally gets to the answer in chapter 3, when he finally gets there, they will find that it's their only hope. And it's your only hope. Unfortunately, we're only in chapter 2, so you're going to have to wait about five sermons uh, to find out what that answer is. No, I'm kidding, of course. That would be cruel. But there's a point to my kidding. And here's the point of the kidding, is that part of the difficulty of breaking up God's Word into preachable or readable sections is that sometimes the things that we're hearing get separated from the context in which we're meant to hear them. And we are meant to hear this in the context of the gospel that Paul is proclaiming. The good news for hypocritical sinners like us. The answer to the sin of hypocrisy, as with the answer to all other sins, is given in chapter 321. But now, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The law was revealing God's perfect standard of righteousness. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The law was not meant you to drive you to yourself to try harder and do better. The law was always meant to drive you to Jesus Christ. Now, don't misunderstand me. 
I am not saying that your behavior doesn't matter or that it's okay to be a hypocrite. No, if you truly understand the gospel, you will understand more than you have ever understood in your life that it's not okay to be a hypocrite. And maybe for the first time in your life, you won't want to be a hypocrite. Because the better you understand the gospel, the more you will hate your sin. The more you will desire to obey Christ, the more you will desire to obey his law, not because you think that you can be justified by it or that you can pride yourself in it before the world, but because having been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you will want to please Christ alone. And you will begin to not care what other people think as much. It will be his smile that you are looking for. The more you understand the gospel, the more you will understand that God is more concerned about what is in your heart than any sort of window dressing you might boast in. And when you understand that, you can better appreciate what Paul says next. Look at verse 25 with me as we think about believing. Paul says, For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now, what does Paul mean here? Well, let's remember that circumcision was an outward sign and seal that marked people out as belonging to God's gracious covenant. And what Paul seems to be saying is that though circumcision admitted someone into covenant membership, the act of circumcision itself did not affect faith in God, and it did not affect obedience to his law. Unless the inward matched the outward, circumcision was of no value. That's why God is constantly through the prophets saying, circumcise your hearts. It's to say this, that if you were circumcised physically, but you just lived as if you were uncircumcised, then your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. If you were a Jew circumcised in the flesh, but you lived like all the other nations did, if you followed after their gods, if you committed idolatry and adultery and did all of these things, even though boasting in the law, it becomes like uncircumcision. Now, just an important aside here, let me say that the same is true for the new covenant sign of baptism. Just like circumcision, Christ instituted a new covenant sign of baptism for his church. It's a sign. It's, it's visible. It's meant to be given to all those who belong to the visible church of Jesus Christ, to believers and their children, just like the old covenant sign was given to the members of the visible church. But just like circumcision, baptism does not in and of itself effect a change in your heart. It doesn't. It does not affect that change for adults. It does not affect that change for children. 
I think that's an important thing to say in a church where we give the covenant sign to our children. That's why our confession says that children must improve upon their baptism by faith. We do not believe, as the Roman Catholics teach, that baptism simply works, that it is affected in the, in the working of the thing. No. Baptism becomes efficacious through the blessing of Christ and through faith. That means we should not trust in baptism to save us any more than the children of Israel trusted in circumcision to save them. We are not meant to trust in the sign. We are meant to trust in Christ who gives the sign. And so kids, let me, let me just say a special word to you kids and teens here today. I am so glad that you're in church. And you should be here. And I'm thankful that you've been baptized. It's the right thing. And God's word is true that all of his promises are for you. But his word also teaches that you need to believe in Jesus Christ. If you are going to lay hold of all of those promises, you must trust yourself in Christ. No one is saved simply because they've been baptized and grown up in church. Those are wonderful blessings to be sure, but unless you have Christ, just like circumcision, they are of no value to you. But Paul says that the opposite is true as well in verse 25, doesn't he? He says that if a man who is uncircumcised, that is to say he doesn't have this external ritual sign of God's covenant, if he keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. And then here's his conclusion. For no one, listen to me now, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, I think that here Paul is talking about these Gentiles who have come to faith in Christ. I mean, think of this. Something remarkable has happened. Even miraculous. Gentiles who were physically uncircumcised, that is, they did not have that covenant sign of covenant membership, they were proving themselves to be members of the covenant of grace because the Spirit of God was at work within them and they were doing what the law required. And the principle behind this, Paul says, is that no one is a Jew who's one merely outwardly. It's an inward matter. Circumcision's a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. These Gentiles were inwardly circumcised of heart by the Spirit of God. If you share in the faith of Abraham, and if you have the Spirit of Christ, you are a Jew inwardly. You belong to true Israel. You belong to the Israel of God. 
I, I don't see that there's any way around what Paul is teaching here. What does it mean to be a Jew? It's not about the outward and physical. It's about your heart. It's a matter, it's an inward matter. Now, some will mistakenly charge me with preaching replacement theology, so-called replacement theology, the idea that the church has somehow replaced Israel. Nonsense. It's not what Paul's teaching. It's not what I'm teaching. The church doesn't replace Israel because Israel has always been the church. And the church has always been Israel. The Greek word ekklesia is just a translation of the Hebrew word kahal. There is a continuity in God's plan and purposes. He doesn't have plan A for Israel, and they, they messed up, and so on, on to plan B with the church. No. The church is God's people in all ages who look in faith to Christ. That's what the church is. What we have in the Old Testament is just the church under age. And in the New Testament, we have the church as she comes to age. And while the church was under age, Paul says she was under the guardianship of the law. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under that guardian. That's, that's exactly what Paul says in Galatians 3. Listen. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. What does it mean to be Abraham's offspring? What does it mean to be a true Jew? It means that you are Christ's. Because Christ is the true Jew. The true Israel of God. You belong to the true Israel of God because you are Christ's. You see, there was... There was one perfectly righteous Jew, wasn't there? There was one whose praise was not from men, but was from God. He was the true Jew. Think of all the things that Paul says here. He knew God's will, and he approved what was excellent. He was a light to those in darkness. He was an instructor to the foolish. He was a teacher of children. The law was his law because he was the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And he always practiced what he preached. He never stole. He never committed adultery. He never committed idolatry. And the name of God was never blasphemed by him, but was always glorified by him because he came to show the world what God was like. He was the radiance of the glory of God. His circumcision was not external only. It was inward, a matter of the heart, by the Spirit. And his praise was from God. And though he was both innocent and perfect, 
he was yet condemned and cursed as a lawbreaker for all those he came to save. Think of this exchange now. He was punished as a thief for thieves. He was punished as an adulterer for adulterers, as an idolater for idolaters. He was punished as a boasting, hypocritical blasphemer, even though he wasn't, but so that he might save all of us who are, and that he might change us and make us into humble, sincere, spirit-filled believers who glorify his name. And so what is the call to you this morning, then? Please do not hear this. I don't think you could hear me saying this, but please do not hear this and hear me saying that you should really double down on the law. And you should really double down on trying harder and being better. No, double down on the law keeper. Double down on Jesus. Place all of your faith and hope in him, for now the righteousness of God is being manifested apart from the law. It's a righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ. And so I'm just going to leave you with one very simple question this morning, and I'm just going to leave it hanging there, and I'm just going to let you ponder it. Where is your heart? Let's pray. O Lord our God, we know what it is to play the hypocrite. We know what it is to have a charade of our lives, to promote ourselves and to boast in our own righteousness. But Lord, we also know in a way that nobody else knows except for you how far we actually fall short of the things that we profess. And so, Lord, we pray that this day, as you have used your word to expose our hearts and our crookedness, we, we pray and we plead with you that you would make us to run to Christ, to find grace and mercy to help in our need, and that in running to Christ, that you would actually begin to write your law upon our hearts by your Holy Spirit, that you would circumcise our hearts, that we might delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Lord, forgive us for the many times in which we make ourselves out to be better than we actually are. Lord, help us to own our sins in order that we might own our Savior and look to him for everything. And so we ask all of these things then in Jesus' name. Amen. And what a joy to have this meal together. This, which is another sign, visible sign that God has given to us. But you know, this sign is, is a beautiful picture of all that God has done, isn't it? As bread is given to you and, and Jesus tells you, this is my body, it comes to you and we're going to break it and it's going to be in pieces. Uh, the wine as it comes to you has been poured out into many different glasses because the blood of Christ was poured out. And it, it, it is all representative of what 
God has done in Christ for our full and final salvation. But the thing is that unless you receive these elements with faith, they don't actually profit you. No more than eating a little bread and drinking a little wine. The way to receive these elements so that they're actually good for your soul is to re receive them in faith. Uh, that's why we're called to examine our hearts before we come to the table. And, and we are examining our hearts as to our faith to feed upon Christ and of our love for Him. And so today, as we come to this table and we share this meal, I would ask you that question again, where is your heart? Can you come to this meal with faith to feed upon Christ and to trust in Him? But if you don't have faith, if, if you're not a Christian, if you don't belong to the church of Jesus Christ, if you're not a baptized, professing member in Christ, uh, then let me just simply ask you to refrain from participating with us. The Bible gives a warning that we should not eat or drink this meal in an unworthy manner. Now, don't think that we get to drink this meal because we're worthy. That's not what it means. This is, this is a meal for sinners. What it means to eat and drink in a worthy manner is to eat and drink with faith. And if you can do that, then you're invited to come to this meal. And let us all come in that way with hearts trusting in Christ. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would take these ordinary elements and set them apart for this sacred use. Lord, we remember that on the night in which you were betrayed, you took bread and you took wine and you gave it to your disciples and said, take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And now, Lord, this bread and wine sits before us as we obey your command. But Lord, we pray that you would take these ordinary elements now and set them apart for this holy use so that as we truly receive them in faith and hope and love, that they would nourish our souls and strengthen us in the inner man, that we might be assured of your love and kindness, of the peace of conscience that we have before you, and, and that they might uh, create in us a desire to walk in, in ways that are glorifying to your name. And so, Lord, use these sacraments in this way for your glory, that your name may be hallowed. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.